Um, I'm glad for the opportunity to do what we're going to do today. We're in Romans chapter 9, and uh, what, I've, what I continue to say to people is um, this, this scripture is so foundational. It, it is core stuff that I tell people, please do not miss this, because it, it is the heart of who we are as Christians. Uh, Luther would say, if there's one book of the Bible I could study and should study every single year of my life, it's Romans. And uh, I think you can see why as you get into it. Uh, it's a missional book. It, it, there's a call to it. Uh, but it's also got just a rich theology that underlay what it means to live our lives out missionally. I'm going to pray for us, and, uh, and then we're going to dig in. I'll do a little recap of chapter 9 and then move forward in it. Um, because there, there's a section of it where we stopped last week that I think, um, again, is, is pretty significant for us. So we will jump over to Exodus a little bit today, uh, just to give you fair warning. But um, my hope is that you'll grow a little bit this morning. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come together, uh, we do so in your name. You've given us a word that makes a difference in our lives. My prayer is that you would use it uh, individually in each one of us the way you want to. Lord, uh, you know us that uh, you know our comings, our goings, you know, you know everyone in this room right now today is hurting, uh, where we need to be lifted up, where we need to be encouraged where we need to be challenged. And so, Lord, use your word to do that, we pray. In Jesus' name, let's say it together. Amen. Kind of going back up high level so that we can come back into uh, Romans chapter 9. I want to do this because it's so thick. It has so much in it. Romans chapter 9, if you look at the, the top left-hand side of this board up here, you'll see And uh, my goal was to say, I hear that out on me. And I'm not sure what to do about that thing. What, what do I do with that thing? It just seems to be goofy. So I, I kind of like that word burden. And what we've, what we've tried to come around, what I've tried to come around the last couple of weeks is this idea that many of us can go through a day, a week, a month with very little burden for others who don't know the Lord. We, we can't. Uh, it's easy for me uh, to, to kind of convince myself, man, I'm so busy. I, I don't really have time to deal with the problems going on across the street in my neighborhood. I don't have, I don't have, I don't have, that, that person is not my responsibility. And what I see in Romans is the, the heart of the missional man that we know as Paul is, is really brought to life here in Romans chapter 9 as he looks at his fellow Jews. And, and what, he's, what he's doing to me is remarkable. He's standing before God. He's looking at his, his fellow Jews. Um, people who were given the law, people who were given the promises of God, people who were called out from amongst all people. And he looks at him and he says, we've lost it. We don't have it. We, we've missed Jesus Christ. And the burden is such in his life that he literally cries out at the beginning of chapter 9, God, let's make a deal. Send me to hell. Now, I've, I've never gotten to that place in my life. And I'm just being 
transparent. I've never gotten to that place in my life where I look at another person and I'd say, listen, God, let's make a deal. Send me to hell if that person could be saved. I think that sometimes we get close to that with people in our families. You know, you've got a a grandchild that you love and they're far away from Jesus Christ and everything about their life is far away from Jesus Christ and you hurt. I mean, there's a burden there and and you, you, you pray for them and you think about them and they're there. We get a little bit close to that. Like God, um, I'm just begging you on behalf of my, my grandkid, right? Uh, would you, would you take them? Would you take me instead of them? That's the burden that, that Paul feels. Um, I had a good conversation, Jason, with, with Sherry by text uh, here this week. One of, well, one of, their fa- one of your family members, uh, Sherry's brother-in-law, passed away. And uh, I said, Sherry, do, do, what, tell me a little bit about the brother-in-law. Does he know Jesus Christ? Well, the, the good news is we don't know. Thank, thank God we don't ever know. But Sherry shared some things with me. And, and she says, well, I've had a burden for him. He was what we call here, my pipe cleaner person, the person that I pray for regularly because I'm not sure that they know the Lord. So Romans is not just this theological treaty. It's, it's a missional book that calls the church to live under that burden. Um, Paul says to, to live the passion of Jesus Christ is not just to watch him go to the cross, but it's to walk with him, right? And on that pathway, we find ourselves beginning to see people not as not as just uh, numbers, but as souls. And our hearts begin to ask that question. Does this soul know who Jesus uh, Christ is or do they not know who Jesus Christ is? My burden is I desire for them to know who Jesus Christ is. And so do I in my life, I can't answer this for you, but do I in my life live in a way that's bold enough to say, I'm, I'm going to find out. I want to know. We're going to have some conversations. I'm not here to beat anybody up or to shove shove something down someone's throat. Um, that's not the intention. But I do want to know. Do you know? Is it well with your soul? Do you know who Jesus Christ is? Because at any moment, boom, uh, death comes, and that is the. And when death comes, there, there are no other questions that matter. None. There's one, and so that's that's the burden that you begin with in in chapter nine. Uh, one of the questions that chapter 9 raises then is this question of failure on the part of Israel. Uh, and, and Paul asks the, the question uh, this way. He says, has, has God failed? Did God fail? In other words, Israel has lost it. They don't know their own Messiah. They're not able to see Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of their own prophecies and law. So does it mean that God failed? That, that, that may, something went wrong? Um, Paul's answer is no, God, God didn't fail. Um, but I, I want you to understand who and what Israel actually is. This is what we've been spending our time talking about is who and what are Israel. Um, I've used a distinction here, a small eye and a large eye, uh, purposely. To, to say that when we think of Israel, when you and I think of Israel, we tend to think of Israel as a physical nation, a, a physical body of people. Um, well, it is that. It is that. But that's small I. That's Israel, the physical body. So when God spoke to Abraham back in Genesis and said, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, and I'm calling out this nation, right? 
Israel to be my people who, who will bear the law and who will take my gospel to the rest of the world. He's speaking to a physical body of people, right? We recognize that small eye. But within Israel is Israel capital I. What do I mean by that? Well, what Paul does in, in chapter 9 is he, he goes back into the book of Genesis. And uh, again, I'll, I'll just encourage you sometime to take this journey. Genesis 15, 16, 17, 21, 25, 26. And he takes this journey and he proves something. He says, listen, um, if you want to understand what and who Israel are, you've got to make a distinction between the physical seed of Abraham and his descendants and spiritual seed, which is faith. You have to be able to distinguish between those two. Physical Israel are all of the people who make up the, the physical body of people that we call Israel. But within Israel are a group of people who are also born of another seed, the seed of faith. And uh, so I may have this large body of people that we say, well, there's Israel. Yeah, they are. Small I. What we can't see is who is true Israel. True Israel are all those who have been born by what? Spiritual seed. Those who have placed their faith in the Messiah who is to come. Who recognize that our salvation is not, is not our own doing. It's not earned by keeping the law. Our salvation is going to come one way. And that's through trusting in the one who God has given to us. They called him Yahshua. We call him Jesus. And so all the way back in the Old Testament... We have this body of people within the body. Can, is that a good way to think about it? I, I mean, that, that's the picture that I have in my mind. Here's the big body. Within that body is a smaller group of people who actually have faith in Jesus Christ. That is true Israel, capital I. And Paul is making that distinction uh, to try to help the, the Roman church understand that God has not called us exclusively to go to the physical body of Israel, but to go out and to bring a word that creates through faith, true Israel. That's our calling as the church. Now, why does this even matter? You know, I mean, what's the, what's the big deal, Biggs? You're going to spend all this time talking about what, what is true Israel. Well, last week we went through several things, and I'm going to pick up those and just kind of recap them for you and then dive into one that needs a little bit of attention. First of all, just the first thing is it's important to make that distinction just to, to recognize that God, God never failed. Yeah, there's a, the, the Jews to this day, when, when we go to Israel and we're talking to Jews, right, do they believe in Jesus Christ? No. What is their expectation? Well, you, you live and you die. And then someday, guess what's going to happen? The Messiah will come and he's going to rebuild his temple and establish his, his kingdom here on earth. And you look at them and you're like, well, what's, what's wrong with you people? Now, those, those are actually Jews who have some kind of faith. The majority have none, like no faith. They're atheists. And you get into conversation with them, they laugh about religion. And you say to yourself, what in the world? How can you possibly be? How can you be Israel? What happened to you? Did, did God just, did his word just fail? No. Well, it looks like it failed. Nope. Here's, here's the reality. God's bringing his word to, to, to people 
I have, you have, we all have the capacity to hear that word and do what? Reject it. We have that capacity. And uh, as a people who have rejected the word, doesn't mean that God has failed. God has been faithful. I, brought, I called you out. I brought you my word. You rejected it. And so Paul is trying to make that clear. It's why it's important to us to make this distinction between physical Israel and spiritual Israel. Second re reason is the mission, to reach Gentile Rome. Um, you remember Jesus when he um, commissioned his disciples, told them, I want you to go first to the lost house of Israel. Jesus felt the same burden that Paul felt, right? And so when you, when you study the New Testament, what you see is that the earliest movement of the church was not outward to the whole world, but inward towards the Jewish synagogues, right? So the, the, the 12 apostles would say, you know, God's called us. He's sending us out into the world and we're now going to go out. And our mission is to go into the synagogues and to the temple and to show people how Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of all these promises and all these prophecy. So you would say, wow, that's, that's the, the focal point of the mission early on as you look at the New Testament. You study Acts, and you'll see it. Then there comes this point in time where God does what? Takes the cup and shakes it. Says, now it's time. Uh, the Jews, you've been going to them. You felt that burden. I do too. But guess what? It's time to take this word out to the Gentiles. And uh, so what, what, what uh, Paul is trying to do is say, Listen, you've always thought of Israel physically, but guess what? As we take the gospel out amongst the Gentiles and people come to faith, they are literally becoming true Israel. That is Paul's definition. Not people born of a physical seed, but people born of a spiritual seed. So for, remember that the, the church in Rome is predominantly made up of folks, predominantly, not, not exclusively, but predominantly made up of people who've come out of that Jewish background. And their inclination is, we need to keep going to the synagogues because that's Israel. Paul is saying, no, Israel are those who come to faith. And so I, I want you to see that, make that distinction, because it's time to take the gospel out to the, the Gentiles. Okay? Third thing, continuity, and this is a big one for me, is um, I'm, I'm constantly being asked, and, and I'm sure you've been asked before, um, why is God so different in the Old Testament uh, than he is in the New Testament? Uh, I have people go so far as to say, yeah, the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. Uh, the God of the Old Testament seems to be angry, and he seems to be vengeful, and he seems to be this God who is, is judgmental, and he, he condemns these things. I mean, my goodness gracious, just read Leviticus. Just read it. I mean, um, it's serious business. If, if, you, if you have, a, if you have a, an ox... I guess we don't have that many ox here in Nebraska, but well, so let's let's say you had a longhorn steer. We got those, right? There's a few of those around here. And your longhorn steer gets loose and it goes out and starts running down, running down, you know, um, 281. And somebody tries to stop that thing and it gores them. 
Well, Leviticus says, here's what we're going to do. We're going we're to put you to death because you're ox gored that person. What kind of God does that? Right? Hey, this person over here, they're practicing homosexuality. What do we do? We surround them and stone them. What kind of God? Whoa, 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 whoa. What kind of God does that? Um, the same God who is alive and well and real today. Here's the difference. Old Testament lived under a set of laws, precepts, statutes that govern life in a way that was meant to preserve spiritual Israel. This is why God in the Old Testament, you'll see him say, you can move into this new land. You cannot marry the woman of this new land. Why? Because when you start marrying the woman of this new land, you're going to start adopting their gods. What do the Israelites do? Move into the new land. They're like, man, those, those ladies are hot. I'm telling you, I, I, know, I know we got that thing there that we're not supposed to look at them, but I mean, they're hot. You start marrying them. And all of a sudden you start reading the prophets and what have they done? They've got, they've got their, their wives idols sitting up in where God's idol altar is. God says, this is why I told you, no, you cannot do that. I, why? I'm going to preserve spiritual Israel. And so we, we read the old Testament like, man, this God, he's, he's cruel. I, I've had this conversation dozens of times. Luke, that God is a, is a homophobic God. And you can't tell me that, that God would, would let somebody be stoned because they're a homosexual. I'm like, yeah, I can. Well, what kind of God is that? I'm like a very loving God. Loving? What's loving about that? I'm like, here's, here's what's loving about that. When I, when I pick up the rock and I look at the person, I don't hate them. I don't look at them and say, you vile person. No. Oppositely, I, I love them. I wish this wasn't, I wish this didn't have to happen, but God's called us to this. My hope for them is that in that moment, they're able to say, listen, I, I repented of my sin. I, I've, I've, I have forgiveness. That person could be stoned and forgiven and spend eternity with God. But what God is doing in that moment, he's saying, is if, if, if that sin comes into physical Israel, it begins to corrupt Israel. And in order to protect the gospel and make sure that it's going out consistently, there are some boundaries that I'm going to put in place. We call them laws and statutes and precepts. And we're going to keep those things in place in order to retain Israel, spiritual Israel's, capacity to take the gospel out in full force. And so the same God of the Old Testament we see in the New Testament. Here's the difference. When Jesus comes, Jesus proclaims all of the laws, all of the precepts, they have been completed in me. We no longer in the New Testament are under those laws and precepts. They are useful. They are, are good. They're not bad. But we no longer live under them. God says, no, I've completed those in Jesus Christ. I fulfilled them. When I went to the cross, I fulfilled them all. And so now spiritual Israel today lives under what? The calling, the same mission that, that Israel had in the Old Testament, go out with my gospel to the world. But we, we live under not 
the the law, but we live underneath the gospel, the law being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And this has been Paul's argument coming into chapter 9, that what compels us is a different kind of law. It's not a thou shalt not law. It's a law that's almost like this law right here. I knew it would drop. Gravity caused it to drop. When the spirit is inside of you, when you're alive in faith, here's the law that's at work within you, is the spirit begins to produce changes in your life and cause you to be a follower of not just Jesus Christ, but someone who is in mission to other people. That's the way the law works in the New Testament. It's a different kind of law, right? So continuity is a big deal uh, for us to be able to say uh, Israel has never been anything other than uh, that body of people that have placed their trust in Jesus Christ and have faith in him. That's true in the Old Testament. That's true in the New Testament. There's continuity throughout. Fourth reason that, that this concept is important is what we call eschatology or end-time theology. And um, we talked about this last week, that there are a lot of people who would say, well, because God called physical Israel to be his people, when he comes again, uh, all of those who are physical Israel are going to be saved. That's what's going to happen. When somebody says that to me, I'm like, did, did you not read? Didn't you read this part up here? Like, like the very beginning of the book? Go back to the beginning of it. Read that. Because if that were true, then it doesn't make sense for Paul to be burdened. If it's true that, hey, we're, just, we're all going to be saved because we were the called out ones, then there's no reason for Paul to say, hey, God, send me to hell on their behalf. There's no reason for it, right? The Bible does not support an end-time theology, an eschatology, that's grounded in the idea that God's going to return and he's going to reestablish the temple in Jerusalem and, and the Jews are going to rule and not only rule, but they will become followers of Jesus Christ. The Bible doesn't support that in any way, shape, or form. And yet, most of the literature that you buy, most of the sermons you get to hear on the podcasts, most of the movies that you get to watch are founded in this theology that says, oh, nope, Israel's going to be saved. God's going to snap them all into faith. Almost all of it. And, uh, and I will tell you that um, the Bible does not support it in any way, shape, or form. Uh, Israel, again, is not about a physical body of people. It's about a spiritual body of people who are born of the seed of faith. So significant to me. Um, man, I, I used to have conversations about this with, with my daughter. Uh, we'd, we'd read some of these books, um, you know, that have become popular over time. And she said, Dad, look at this. this is, is this true? Is this what's going to happen? I'm like, that's a book. Put it down. Just put it down for a minute. That's fun to read it. It is fun to read it. Any of you, by the way, have any of you read some of this kind of literature? Any of you read Left Behind? It's hilarious. To me, it's hilarious to read it. It's almost like a comedy. Look at the devil. He's out sunbathing. I'm like, stop. Just put, put it down. Read this book. I give my daughter a Bible. I'm like, just read this one. This is a good one. It tells the story really very accurately. Just read it. Okay. Um, so 
The fifth reason, uh, and this is very personal to me, um, I think that when you read the ninth chapter of, of Romans and you begin to recognize this distinction, Israel, Israel, you can't escape this from a personal perspective. Um, the question that you have to ask today is, are you, am I, Israel or Israel? Which one am I? And the reason that we laid down the line is to recognize the fact that the church in America today, quite honestly, is a mess. It's a mess. And as I listen to a lot of the teaching and preaching going on in our world, I'm like, you know what? I, I'm, not hearing, I'm not hearing truth. I'm not hearing a word of God. And yet there's a lot of people. Oh, yeah, we're, we're Israel. I mean, we have major church bodies who've gone so far as to say there's many ways to get to heaven and you just need to be honest and true to yourself and follow your pathway to get there, right? I always, I always tell the story. My, my, my dad met my mom at, at the University of, of Arkansas. That's where they went. Only, only state in the entire, of all the states in the United States, the only state Mentioned by name in the Bible. You guys know that, right? Nebraska is not in there. Texas is not in there. But by golly goes, you, you open up the book and it says, and Noah looked out of the Arkansas. <laughs> right? <laughs> when my dad met my mom, she was Southern Baptist. And uh, here's what he thought. He says to me, son, he says, son, I met, met your mom. She's, she's one of those liberal Southern Baptists. And I said, liberal Southern Baptists? Southern Baptists aren't liberal. I'm like, Southern Baptists, they're like hardcore, let's go, let's go at it kind of people. He's like, yeah, but I was a Methodist. <laughs> I'm like, well, that, that makes even less sense. Methodists, I mean, you go to a Methodist church today, we're going, hey, people, guess what? We, we, love, we love everybody. We love everybody. God loves everybody. You die, you go to heaven. That's it. Doesn't matter what you do. Just be honest to yourself. Be true to yourself. Love everybody. Not my dad's church. Why is it called the Methodist church? There's a method. And when you study the Methodist church and its history, it grows out of the holiness movement. And the holiness movement took sin very seriously. And uh, the Wesleyans actually outlined a methodology towards achieving salvation. And they really did believe the Baptists were liberal, right? Today, I listen to, method, I listen to so much stuff out there. I'm like, what you're, stop talking. What you're saying has nothing to do with the Bible. And so when I look at the church today, what I have to recognize is that in the church today, it, it hasn't changed. It's the same as what we see in the Old Testament. There's, there's Israel. There's people, yep, I'm saved. Love Jesus. Love everybody. And then there's, there's Israel. Those who really honestly trust Jesus Christ for their salvation. On a, on a, at a very personal level, there will come points along the way in all of our lives. There should come points along the way. Where And there are hard points where the devil pushes himself into your life in such a way that he causes you to question your faith. That's going to happen. 
And in the midst of those times, what, what you hold on to is a word that holds on to you. And that causes you to go through those dark times in a way that says, listen, I, I am a fallible human being who I know my sin is before me always, but I know my Savior and, it, and he's holding on to me. That's a really significant question. Because I belong to a church, I may be part of little I Israel, but it's not necessarily part of capital I Israel. Hard to say, but true. As a pastor, I never seek to judge that. I ne- my, my job is not to say, okay, look, we're going we're gonna to sort it out. That'll be God's, God's business, but it, it will occur on the day that he returns and uh, there will be those to the right. These are, this is Israel. There will be those to the left. This is not. This is those who said, I, I'm Israel. So, pretty important question. Um, so then, then the, the, the next thing that becomes significant is this question. So how do I become Israel? Paul has said it. It's through, through, through the seed of faith that I become Israel. But as you get into verses 15, 16, 17, this question is raised, well, um, how does that work? How, how do I finally become a believer? How do I come to faith? And I, I'm going to come back to this word. We've used it several times, this word election that God prior to the very beginning of the world is at work creating Israel. I know who Israel will be. So let's go to uh, chapter nine, go down to verse. Um, let's, let's start with verse Verse 14, 15, 16, 17, and just pick this up because it's going to take us into the Old Testament. And we've got to wrestle with something that I think is pretty significant. Verse 14 says, what shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? Now, remember the words that have just preceded this are, I, I, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. In other words, Paul is pointing back to the creation of, of Israel. He's pointing us back there to, to Genesis. And he says, Jacob, I loved Esau. I hated, uh, we've said the last few weeks, the term hated here is not, I hate you. The term is, is what it's, it's talking about who I've called. I, I've called Jacob. Uh, I have not called Esau to be Israel. Um, so the question then verse 14, well, then is God unjust? Is this, this seems unjust. I mean, how can, how can God pick one and he doesn't pick the other? That seems unjust. Paul says, well, by no means. For, he says to Moses. Ooh, these are hard. Actually, these are pretty hard words. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. Notice that both of those are positives. There's not a negative here. Okay? Because what we're going to have to sort through is back to this question of double predestination versus predestination, double election versus singular election. Let me make it really simple for you. There, there's two different views of election. There's this idea that God, before time began, said, you are going to heaven. I elect you. You will come to faith. And then... He took this chair, sorry about that, Dan, and he says, you, I condemn. 
you're going to hell. That's double predestination. That's the heart, by the way, of the Presbyterian Church. It's Calvinistic theology. Is that true, though? Because if it is, then I have what? I have what? No, I have no choice at all, right? I mean, God decides it. This is what's being asked right here. Well, this doesn't seem just. Paul's trying to answer the question. He says, well, just take a look at this. God has mercy on who he'll have mercy on. He has compassion upon whom he'll have compassion on. So that, and I want you to insert a word here. It's not in your text, but just kind of insert it parenthetically. So that, verses 16, so that it, parentheses, faith, in parentheses, depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. In other words, what Paul is doing here, he does consistently, does it in Ephesians, does it in Galatians, does it in Philippians, does it in Colossians. He says, if you are saved, didn't depend upon your will. You didn't will yourself saved. I, I have a choice. I, I choose to follow Jesus. Nope, didn't, didn't depend upon your will. Didn't depend upon human exertion. Didn't depend upon your works. But I lived a great way. Nope, didn't depend upon that. God chose it. So I want you to say, I want you to see very clearly that if you're Israel, if you follow Jesus Christ, and you have faith in him, didn't depend upon you, depended upon him. Right? That's what he's trying to say here. What about the other one? Does God equally then choose to condemn people? It's really tough here. It's really tough here. So you have to be, I even wrote it up here. Be careful here because we have to be. Because notice what he does next. Verse 17, he says, for scripture, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, just watch these words. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Ooh. Look, I thought, I thought you said that we as Lutherans are not double predestinationists, and we're not. In other words, we believe the Bible teaches that, yes, God, God, God is the one who causes faith to happen in a person's life. It's not, it's not my will. It's not my exertion. But the flip side is not true. Because the reality is that every single human being has choice. The Bible cuts through that in every, in every book. What choice do I have? I have the choice to do what? To hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and what? Reject it. In other words, in the Bible, is there any sin that's unforgivable? Yes, there is. In American culture, oh no, all the sins are all forgiven. We're going to heaven. In the Bible, no, there's actually one sin that is not forgivable. Remember what it is? It's the rejection of the Holy Spirit. Not a forgivable sin. Right? And so I have a choice. I can do that. I can reject him. I can exert my will against the Holy Spirit, right? And so what, what Lutheran theology at its core suggests is, if I'm saved, all credit belongs to who? 
Who, guys? To God. Why are you saved? To God. It's his doing. If I am not saved, all credit goes where? To me. I, I chose to reject that. I said, no, I don't, need, I don't need you, God. I don't need the Holy Spirit imposing upon my life. Well, then what about Pharaoh here? Because we just read the words. It says he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So what's going on with this hardening? What is, what's, what's happening here? You have to go back to Exodus to see it, but it's kind of fun when you do. So I'll, I'll encourage you to do that, uh, to take a little journey with me. We're going to Exodus chapter 4 is where we're going. I want you to find verse 21, Exodus 4, go to verse 21. And remember what's happening is um, Moses has been sent to set the people of of God free from Egypt, and the Pharaoh, for some reason, doesn't want to let them go. If you were Pharaoh, you would not have wanted to let them go either, because your entire economy rests upon the two million-plus slaves that you employ to make bricks every day and to build your city, and all of a sudden this guy knocks on your door one day and says, ah, i got a great idea. Let's let your entire workforce go. I don't think so. So... Most of us read this incorrectly. I'm going to challenge you here. We know the story because we've watched, we've, watched, we've watched Charleston Heston do it many times. He comes into he comes into Egypt. He tells Pharaoh, he goes, okay, Pharaoh, I've got a bad deal for you. You're going to have problems. You're going to have all these plagues, and it's going to be bad for you. You should just let them go now. Right? That's the story. And so God is using these plagues against Pharaoh so that Pharaoh will let them go. That's not true. The plagues aren't for Pharaoh. Oh, they, they, happen to, they happen to achieve some things in Pharaoh's life. But guess who the plagues are for? They're for Israel. Because you know what the Israelites are? They're not just physically slaves. They become enslaved to a way of life that's forgotten. That God is the God who sets us free. They've forgotten the power of God. They've forgotten that God's promises are true. They've forgotten that God is the one who rescues us. They've forgotten all of that. And we do too. We do. I'm depressed. I can't figure this thing out in my life. Have you forgotten the promises of God? I don't know. I'm not going to make it. I'm in big trouble. Have you forgotten the promises of God? We do. We forget them. So God erupts, erupts these 10 plagues upon Pharaoh. We won't, we won't try to read them all, but... It is kind of fun uh, when you begin to read them. Remember the first, remember the first uh, plague was turning the Nile and all of the streams that come out of the Nile and all of the pools that form into blood. Um, I think sometimes we forget this, but um, it, it's kind of interesting that when, when God does these plagues, all of them are meant to teach Israel something about God and to remind and to remind Egypt of who God really is. Why blood? What is it that will ultimately set you free? The first plague in the Exodus is blood. And the day comes when you will paint blood upon your door mantle, and all of the blood will remind you of the blood that splashed on Abraham's face when I cut the animals in two and made a covenant with him and pointed forward to the day that my son would spill his blood. On a cross. Blood. Frogs. <laughs> Frogs. 
Just, just play with this for just a minute. Go to, go to chapter 8, frogs. you got to love frogs, right? Why frogs? I mean, God's just messing with them, right? No. Remember the, the goddess Hecht in Egypt? She took on the form of a frog. And so what God was doing in that particular plague was doing what? Showing the people of Israel, I am God, not a frog. Not some lady who takes on the, the characteristic of a frog. What about gnats? I love gnats. I love the fact that God used gnats. They will drive you insane. Remember what he made the gnats from? Dust. And so what God was saying was, I've made you from dust. And you will go back to dust. And your rotten corpse will be circled by gnats. And those who believe in me will rise up from the dead. And so all the plagues, all the plagues are meant to do one thing. And um, why didn't Pharaoh listen? I want you to just go to, the, go to chapter 7. Here we are. We've got these plagues going off. And go to verse 13. The reason that Pharaoh does not choose to let the people of God go is this. Read this verse with me. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as God had said. Uh, now, skip over uh, to chapter 8 and go to verse 15. Let's read this one together. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. When you read through this entire account, here's the number I want you to kind of keep in the back of your head, too. There are two specific times when Pharaoh says, just let them go. Pat it. Frogs, gnats, blood, just let them go. And God does this. Nope, I'm hardening your heart. So it seems like God's, is it, maybe is Paul saying God chooses some, I'm merciful to some, he hardens others? No, that's not what's happening here. Distinction. Discipline versus hardening. Really critical that you get this because you're going to see this appear several times in the scripture. Hebrews chapter 12 says, God disciplines those whom he what? loves. You ever come under discipline? You have. I, I do. God says, I'm putting you under discipline. Why? I love you. I'm not going to let you keep going this direction. It's a bad direction. It's going to destroy you. Okay. Hardening is what happens to an individual who has committed the unforgivable sin. They have rejected the Holy Spirit and God says, okay, you're no, you're no longer disciplined. I can't discipline you. You're not savable. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm actually going to harden you in order to use you as a tool in the lives of my people. Pharaoh, when he's hardened, he wants to, listen, he wants to let the people go. Like, get them out of here. And then all of a sudden, God hardens him. Nope, don't get them out of here. Bring them back. Don't, don't let them go. God's doing that. Why? Because he's not done teaching his people, the lessons he wants them to hear. He literally uses figures historically. I kind of go through my mind, I think Hitler. 
did God harden him and use him in the lives of his people? We sure learned a lot as the church during the time of Hitler. We learned that when the church just kind of rolls over and says, oh yeah, I guess we better stop preaching the, preaching the, the true gospel. It lost its, lost its place. We learn from Hitler. Okay? I think about, I think a Mao Zedong. So, single greatest mass murderer in all of history. Killed millions of Christians. Did we learn from him? Yeah, we did learn something. You know what we learned? Is that Mao couldn't kill the gospel. Because the gospel went in, into homes underground and continued to grow during that time. God hardens people. So go all the way back now to Romans, because I want you to catch this before we leave today. Uh, it's, it's just important. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, listen, here's who God is. God wants people to have mercy. He wants them to have mercy. But guess what? He has, in history, he has hardened some people. Um, not condemn them to hell, because guess what? They condemned themselves to hell. They rejected the Spirit of God. But he hardened them in order to use them for his own people. Now, there's a subtlety that's going on underneath this. Oh, and and it's, it's really easy to miss it. Israel, Israel, this Israel, small i, has hardened itself. The, the Sadducees, the Pharisees have hardened themselves. Kill Paul, right? And there, here's the Jewish church. Guess what God's going to do? He's going to use that period of time to get the gospel out to the Gentiles. Um, so fo follow this. Let's come back to the scripture itself. Verse, verse 18 again. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills. He hardens whoever he wills. You will say to me then, well, then why does he still fall, find fault? Who can resist his will? Now, the answer to this is Job-like. Verse 20. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, key verse 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also for the Gentiles, as he says in Hosea. Jews looked at the Romans as what? Pagan, unclean unbelievers. What, God is, what, what Paul is saying here is, guess what? What if God, choosing to be merciful, endured with great patience these people in order that through you he might bring his mercy to them? God desires, the Bible doesn't contradict itself, by the way. God desires that some men be saved, true or false. It's false. God desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the saving truth. That's God's heart. He has called some 
from, from before the beginning of time. He did not choose others to go to hell, but gave to people the power to reject him and used some of those very people to cause those who he has called to go out with the, the gospel message, us not knowing who will and will not reject the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these words become so significant to uh, this group of predominantly Jewish people. They have to get it in their minds that what God is calling us to is to now take the gospel out to this group of people that we've always seen as the unpreferable vessel. And now God says, no, I've endured them and it's time to bring them my mercy. I'll close with this. Verse 25, he quotes Hosea and um, <clears throat> we can spend a lot of time on that. We want, but he quotes him. He says, those who are not my people, I will call my people. The Romans will become Israel. He, her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. You've always hated the Gentiles. Guess what? I love them. Verse 26, in that very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Israel, go out with my word to the Gentiles and watch me work faith. Verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay, even as Isaiah has said. I'll leave you with that thought that uh, we'll come back to is God raises up um, in this time what I call the remnant. And um, there's always been one. You know, whether, whether you're looking at a prophetic book of the Old Testament or you're looking at the church today, um, what, what you are always looking for is who is that remnant of people who are Israel, who understand the mission of God, who are ready to take the gospel out into the world. Honestly, I look for it. I do look for it. When I step into a church, my understanding is my job not to tell who, who is and is not saved. I can't tell that. That's God's job. What I ask God for, any church I've ever served, is God, show me the remnant. It's here. It's in the church. It's a body of people who have mission at their heart because they, they trust God and he is at work through them. And it's through the remnant that God has always done his work in the church and continues to today. Whew, that's a lot, guys. Those are going to make me tired today. I'll tell you that right now. Um, we can talk more about this. I just think it's thick theology, but, but really important uh, in the sense that if you miss what Israel is, you really miss uh, a lot of what is happening congruently through the whole of Scripture. Let's pray. We'll come back next week. Lord, as we uh, close out today, just uh, again, recognizing that um, what it means to be Israel is not, it, it has nothing to do with our will, our efforts, our anything. It's, it's you who are the creator of. And that's true for each, each one of us today. Instill within us that heart, that missional heart that Paul has and send us out into a world continuing to be desperate to hear a word of hope. Our world needs it today. We pray in Jesus' name.